Well, good morning. Uh, thank you for the opportunity of sharing with you this morning on this uh, exciting Mission Sunday. It's a great privilege uh, for me to be part uh, of this service. Uh, you're well aware that Samaritan's Purse is more than just the Christmas uh, uh, box appeal, but it's uh, quite an impressive ministry that Samaritan's Purse uh, conduct uh, with relief and aid assistance uh, around the world where there's famine and natural disasters. They do an amazing job uh, in the name of Jesus, uh, whether whatever uh, the race or creed or gender or religion uh, they are able to respond to human need. And of course, uh, uh, your uh, participation in the uh, Christmas, uh, the, the shoebox appeal has been uh, quite remarkable. And uh, uh, we thank God for each of you that have uh, contributed uh, towards that. It's, uh, it's terrific. Uh, this morning, uh, I want to talk about God's uh, global mission. Uh, the, the Bible is the story of God's global mission from Genesis uh, to Revelation. Every book of the Bible is about God's global mission. God's plan from before the very foundation of the world is to restore, reconcile and redeem a people from every tribe and language and people and nation about God's design for global proclamation as revealed in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. I'm going to give you an overview from Genesis to Revelation in a short video. And I trust as you see it, uh, you'll be able to relate to... Oh, sorry, I missed one. Yeah, that's it. So that's where we're going. And this is the video. I hope. Yes, there we are. Watch this. The Bible is an incredible text made up of 66 different books written by more than 40 authors over a span of a thousand years. It is not just a compilation of a bunch of different stories or a self-help manual or even a devotional book. It is one cohesive story from Genesis to Revelation, the story of God's glory. Let's take a look at his story. In the beginning, God created everything for himself and his glory. At the pinnacle of that creation, he made man so that God could share himself with others. We were told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God. But man decided that God couldn't be trusted, that he was holding something back from us. We decided to live for ourselves instead of for God, and this filled the earth with sin and selfishness. The generations of man had soon gone so far off track, in fact, that God flooded the entire earth and started over with a man named Noah. When Noah stepped off the ark, God told him the same words he had told Adam, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Once again, however, humanity looks to give itself honor instead of God. Because they all shared the same language, it was easy to communicate and cooperate, so they made a plan. At a place called Babel, they would build a tower up to the heavens, and in doing so, make a name for themselves. They labored to build their own kingdom rather than obey God's command. They had made the same mistake as each of the generations before them. Since mankind had ignored his message to spread his name and his glory throughout the earth, God took matters into his own hands. He scrambled the languages of the people so they could no longer communicate easily with each other. In that moment, God had formed the many different tribes and peoples of the world. So the different people groups spread to the north, the south, the east, and the west. 
Out of those nations, God chose a man named Abraham and made a covenant with him. God told Abraham that he would bless him and all his descendants, turning them into a great nation that would bless all the other nations. God eventually called this nation Israel, and he began to demonstrate his glory through them in many ways. He gave them a set of laws to live by so that they could live separate and holy lives from all the other nations. In doing so, they would become his royal priests, mediating between God and man. By living out his commands in the sight of the nations, Israel would encourage people to love God and love others. God also gave Israel a special geographical place on the earth, strategically located in the middle of all other nations. It was in this promised land that Israel would be a light to all nations, showing them the path to God even in the darkness of the world. Sometimes Israel would live out this calling well, understanding God's desire to bless all of the peoples of the earth through them. Other times, though, Israel would fall into the same trap that humanity had again and again, glorifying itself rather than glorifying God. When Israel got off track, God intervened. Sometimes he raised up prophets to remind them of their mandate to bless the nations with the blessings he had given them. Other times he would discipline his people by allowing them to be taken captive by other nations. Regardless, God used Israel, even in their disobedience, to make his name great throughout the earth. But all of this was just the beginning of what God had in store. In all of its ups and downs, Israel grew hungry for a promised Messiah king who would establish an everlasting kingdom that would never be defeated. That, of course, leads us to Jesus. God sent his son Jesus to earth for 33 years to dramatically demonstrate the Father's love for both Jew and Gentile alike. Yes, he was from King David's bloodline, but his genealogy had both Jews and Gentiles in it. His first worshipers were the wise men, Gentiles from the east. Angels proclaimed that his salvation would be for all peoples. Even his baby dedication identified him as a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Time and time again, Christ reminded his disciples, who considered themselves God's favorite, that God's plan from the beginning was to bless all peoples. His life modeled this message perfectly. He became angry when the temple wasn't being used as a house of prayer for all nations. He told parables about the kingdom of God being a kingdom for all people groups. And he preached good news to Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, educated, and uneducated alike. Jesus served Canaanites, Samaritans, Romans, and Greeks. He was and is a true Messiah for all nations. He lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, and rose again with a perfect resurrection. Then he commanded us to go make disciples of all nations, the perfect words to sum up his ministry. He told us that this gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all of the ethnic groups, and then the end would come. We saw the beginnings of this when the Holy Spirit filled the disciples at Pentecost and told the wonders of God in all the different languages of the world. We saw it continued when Christ called Paul and other apostles to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. It continues even now. We are waiting for the end that we see in Revelation, when the Lamb of God, Jesus, has purchased with his blood people from every nation. Those people will form a multitude that no one can count from every tribe, tongue, and people group, worshiping and saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the story of the Bible, a single cohesive story from cover to cover. God's story 
the story of his glory among all the nations. But it can't come to fruition until all nations have heard. He invites you into that story. He invites you into that mission. What part will you play? Well, we've gone from Genesis to Revelation, haven't we? Now I can sit down, say I'm in and go for lunch. But uh, uh, yeah, an amazing story. And we might say that today as we share together about global mission, we're actually encouraging each other to be part of God's plan and to help bring back the king by in fact reaching those nations through the sharing of our resources and by going. I've chosen to share just a few thoughts from uh, these three verses in Matthew chapter 10. Uh, And in these three verses, uh, we see, in fact, uh, all the context of these three verses is where Jesus was sending out uh, his disciples. And you've got to read the rest of the chapter to sort of see all that he's he's talked about. But the uh, the geography of Israel in the Middle East plays a strong role in this reading that we've shared this morning. Israel and the Middle East is an arid land and historically survival depended on sharing water. There were and still are strict social customs regarding hospitality. A household uh, was obliged to offer any visitor or stranger food and water and the opportunity to wash shelter and even provide protection. In fact, discipleship equaled hospitality. Not to offer hospitality was dishonourable. And this is the world in which Jesus is sending his disciples. Their reliance on the hospitality of the people they encounter and the welcome they receive is, in a sense, the key to the success of their mission. Jesus sent his disciples out to the lost sheep of Israel to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, while he gave them authority over unclean spirits and to heal every disease and affliction, he warned them that they were like sheep among wolves and that they would experience hard times, rejection, betrayal, family division, persecution, imprisonment, lies, slander and hatred. And you find this in all the preceding verses of chapter 10. Jesus isn't giving them or us as followers of Jesus a real positive reason why they should sign up to this particular mission. He comes to the end of this passage with the words, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He then answers the question, what's the reward for living like this? And I guess it's a fair question. Following Jesus will not win you any praise from the world. If you dare to take a strong stand on any moral issue because of your Christian faith, you may lose your job. You may be sued. You will certainly be attacked on social media. Around the world, our brothers and sisters face the threat of arrest, of physical violence, and often of death itself. So we might say, is it really worth following Jesus? Maybe we'd be better off keeping our head down, our mouth shut, and not making any waves. Why risk your career 
or your life when you could just go along to get along, if you get my drift. On one occasion, Peter asked that very question. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? He is saying, what is in it for us? It was Jim Elliott on uh, one occasion, uh, Jim Elliott who was one of the five American missionaries murdered in Ecuador in 1956. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This particular passage is about rewards. And you know, we all, uh, when we give our lives away from, for some purpose beyond ourselves, that, Jesus says, is paradox, uh, that paradoxically results in a gain. As Christians, we would call that a reward of the righteous. We all like to be rewarded for our efforts, whether it's a gold stars on our school papers as children, praise from our parents and teachers as we get older, or money as payment for our expenditure of time and talents in our work. We all appreciate recognition and benefits from our actions. A friend that uh, many of you know, Peter Rouse, I'm sure many of you know Peter from Warrigal uh, as you attend the Belgrave Heights Convention. The Rouse family uh, provided the flowers uh, from their family, their flower farm in Warrigal for many decades. They also kindly provided the flowers for our wedding because we worked together at CLTC. Uh, Peter was involved in CLTC in Papua New Guinea, Bible College of Victoria and Melbourne School of Theology in the Uniting Church and in many other community causes. As a result, and out of the blue, this year, after six decades of service to the community and a range of church organisations, he was recognised with a Queen's Birthdays Honour Award, a member of the Order of Australia. And so we say congratulations uh, to Peter. It was Albert Einstein who once said, if people are good only because they fear punishment and hope for reward, then we are a sorry lot indeed. It was Thomas Merton who said, Love seeks one thing only, the good of the one loved. It leaves all the other secondary effects to take care of themselves. Love, therefore, is its own reward. In our reading, Jesus is promising a reward for those who welcome prophets and righteous persons to the community and for those who offer kindness to the vulnerable in their midst. That reward is participation in the kingdom of God, which has a both present and future component. Here Jesus promises two things. He makes two promises to those who would follow Jesus. We will connect people to God... And we will be a source of blessing to others by acts of kindness and compassion in the name of Jesus. Firstly, we will connect people with God. The one who welcomes you welcomes me. And the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. Verse 40. Notice the connection here. Now, have I gone too far ahead? I have, sorry. Yeah. Notice the connection here. First, people welcome you. Second, by welcoming you, they welcome Christ. Third, by welcoming Christ, they welcome the Father. Here is the clearest possible answer 
to the question that has been raised recently. Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Some people want to answer yes, but this verse tells us plainly that the way to the Father is through the Son. Jesus said it in a negative sense in John 15:23 when he said, "Whoever hates me hates my Father as well." In today's multicultural world, uh, where we have enshrined tolerance and diversity and pluralism as almost the new secular trinity, statements like that don't quite fit in. They are too narrow. How dare you say one way to God? The Bible teaches us clearly and repeatedly that there is one God and the only way to know him is through Jesus Christ, his son. So here's the good news for all of us. When we share the gospel, we are connecting people with God. We all have this privilege of connecting people with God by unashamedly sharing the good news of Jesus' love. When we stand with those releasing the word of God through Bible translation and literacy, when we nurture partnerships with national workers and we are followers of Jesus experiencing the power of his promise that we are connecting people with God. And praise God that we can do that together. Secondly, uh, the second promise is that we will be a source of blessing to others by acts of kindness and compassion in the name of Jesus. Anyone who welcomes a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who welcomes a righteous person because he's righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will be by no means, he will not by no means lose his reward. So here we get the point that not everyone will reject our witness. There are those who will welcome us and receive a blessing. After all, we are the ambassadors of the king. When people receive us, they receive the king. For we are his representatives. We are not all called to be prophets or to be missionaries, but we're all called to win the prophet's reward. We all have a role to play as we use our skills, our gifts and our resources to advance the kingdom of God. Yes, he won thousands to Christ, we read, but he didn't do it alone. Yes, they started 150 churches in Thailand, but they didn't do it alone. Yes, he built a great church, but he didn't do it alone. We are a team and the supporting players are participants with the lead players. The church is a symphony rather than a series of solo recitals. We do it together, not one person alone, for God's glory and not for the glory of an individual. So let's walk through verse 42. Uh, first we look at the person. Uh, yeah. Now have I gone too far? What have I done there? Note the connection here. I've gone too far, have I? Next slide on. Sorry, not working. Here we go. Uh, first, we look at the person. Anyone or whoever, there are no limits to this promise for followers of Jesus. You don't need to be a pastor or a missionary or a professor to qualify for this particular promise. If you are sensitive to the needs of others, to the point of even giving a cup of cold water to the thirsty, then you're qualified. 
Second, look at the recipient. One of these little ones. In this context, Jesus is talking about the least among his followers. There are little ones everywhere. You are reaching out to the hurting and to the forgotten. You are reaching out to the hurting and the forgotten, to the marginalised and to the poor and to the homeless as you support uh, Phil and Sandy Jones in Mexico, as you support the work of International China Concern in caring for children and providing medical assistance and in assisting indigenous ministry through your partnership at Port Augusta. Jesus sees your concern for people that the world can't even see at all. They don't even see those children in China. They don't even see the homeless in Mexico. But because of your compassion and because you are followers of Jesus, you are contributing to bringing people into a relationship with him. Third, look at the action to give a cup of cold water. Simple, inexpensive, often unseen. unseen. It requires very little preparation. It was C.H. Spurgeon who remarked, a cup of cold water may contain a sea of warm love. Fourthly, look at the certainty of the reward. I assure you, for most of us, a cup of cold water is not a big deal. If we're thirsty, we go to the tap and, and fill a glass with water. If we want it cold, we get some from the fridge. But as we learned earlier, 40% of the global population, water is a scarce commodity. It is estimated that 783 million people do not access, do not have access to clean water. On a hot day, nothing refreshes like cold water. It's not much to us. We don't even think about it. We take it for granted. In Matthew 25... For some reason, in Matthew 25, Jesus says it a different way. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and, and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Now what a question. Surely if you fed Jesus, you would remember it. Surely if you gave him clothes, you would remember it. Surely if you visited him in prison, you would remember it. But they don't. He explains, whatever you did for me, for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Whatever you did for the least, or one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. We know when we go in his name, he goes with us. You know, we are going with him and for him. But now we know we are also going to him. For every individual is made in the image of God. He's on the receiving end of the mercy transaction. 
He's there in the face of the Afghan Syrian refugee. He stands with the homeless on the streets. He sees the single mother struggling with three young children. He has a cell inside every prison in the world. He walks the halls of the cancer unit at the hospital. He hears the cry of abused children. There is a sense in which the Lord Jesus can be found wherever there is human pain and suffering. If there is a broken heart, you can find him there. If there is sadness or guilt, Jesus will be there. That's why he was called the man of sorrows. When we help his people, we are helping him. When we dry a tear or offer a word of hope, we are serving him. When we go the extra mile, even though we are already dead tired and a bit frustrated because we don't have the time or energy, but we do it anyway, he sees and knows what we have done. The Bible is the story of God's global mission. God's plan from before the foundation of the world was to ransom people from every tribe and language and people and nation. About God's design for global gospel proclamation as revealed in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. God is on a mission to gather a people from every nation who will enjoy his grace and extend his glory. What is mission? The word mission itself, the word mission itself has to do with sending. In the scriptures we see the verb to send being used over and over again in many different ways. But there's a sense in which the whole life of the church and the whole experience of the followers of Jesus are rooted ultimately in some kind of sending that is founded in the authority and action of God himself. The word apostle means one who is sent. In the time of the New Testament, an apostle was one who would carry the authority to speak in the name of the one who had sent him. The first apostle is Christ himself, the one sent by the Father. Then the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. Then, then the Spirit was poured out on the church and the church was sent to complete the ministry of Christ in the world to every tongue and to every nation and to every tribe. In one sense, this is the apostolic ministry of the church. We are all sent once into the neighbourhood, into our workplace, into our world, whether it is Morocco or to our Muslim neighbours across the street. We are on mission under the authority of the one who sent us. That's who we are in Christ. That's why we gather as his people. Jesus said in John 17 and verse 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have reached them, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. As he continues to pray for his disciples in John 17, he says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Here we see the basis of the mission of the church. God sent Christ, Christ sent the church. The biblical basis of missions is the word of God spoken with divine authority. It is the mandate of Christ for all of us 
as followers of Jesus. We live in a time where the secular culture and many churches dismiss the whole concept of world mission. Some claim that the time of the missionary activity is over. One argument offered is that the missions are not only unnecessary, but they are a destructive force unleashed upon the world. The change, the charge is that world mission have been nothing more than a platform of exploitation to underdeveloped nations. But that is not true. That is not true. And not supported by the evidence. Modern missions have provided valuable medical and educational and agricultural resources in, ad- in addition to the important work of proclaiming the good news un- of Jesus. Unfortunately, the number of missionaries in the field continues to decline because a significant portion of the church no longer believes that it is necessary to fulfil this mandate that Christ has given to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. In John chapter 10... Paul raises a series of questions that speak directly to the matter of our responsibility, having affirmed that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He then asks, how will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. No one can call upon Christ to save them if they don't believe in him. Paul puts his finger on the challenge and the responsibility of the church to send so that people might hear about Christ and upon hearing might believe and be saved. When is the missionary mandate over? when it has been fulfilled, when the mandate of Christ has been completed. Matthew 24, 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So this morning, brothers and sisters, we're encouraging others, each other to bring back the king, to use our gifts and abilities and our resources to invest in global mission. Yes, mission down the road, local mission, but but with a, a global heart to see what God is doing. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. You know, we've got a long way to go. This gives you a little bit of an indication. The, the red, if you can't see, is unreached and least reached peoples. The yellow is the formative or nominal church. And the green is the establishment, the established and significant church. There are many unreached people groups that we need to be praying for and that we need to be aware of. The task remaining is that there's approximately 32% that you might say are, are, are regarded as Christians. They're either followers of Jesus or nominal Christians. There's 39%, some 2.91 billion, that have heard but have given no response. And there's 29%, 2.17 billion people that virtually have not had exposure to the gospel. Now, you know what 
people can do with statistics. We might get some different statistics from other people. This, this comes from the Joshua Project, and they're fairly reliable, but it gives you a, a, a bit of a, an overview of the task ahead as we invest our lives for his glory. And so we close. Lunch is calling. We have explored two promises Jesus made to those who follow him to connect people to God and to be a source of blessing to others as we respond to their needs. Only Jesus brings salvation. Only Jesus gives us sensitivity to those who are in need and only Jesus motivates us and empowers us for service. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity of sharing your word and the opportunity to celebrate this Mission Sunday. And we thank you for all that you're doing in and through us. Thank you for this overview of the scripture of your heart for the nations. Help us to reflect this uh, as we reach out to people locally, as we, as we pray globally, Father, to see what you're doing across the world. Lord, help us to go out recognising that your last command to make disciples of all nations will be our first priority as a church, locally and globally. And we commit this to you for your glory, for our, for our benefit to be partners with you in what you're doing in the world and for your glory globally. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious and worthy name. And the people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.